Welcome to the JIMD podcast and a special episode where we look back at the SSIM annual meeting that took place in 2022 and hear from some of the authors who have submitted articles for a themed issue of the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease. Hello there. Now, regular listeners will know that I occasionally like to mess around with the podcast format and bring together a collection of speakers around a themed topic or issue. And this is just one of those times. Over the next 50 minutes or so, I'm hoping to look back at the SSIM annual meeting that took place in Freiburg in 2022, but also look forward to a wonderful themed issue featuring many fantastic papers commissioned after the meeting. If you want to leap straight to any of the three papers discussed, please check the timings in the podcast description. But I like to think that these podcasts are like a long play album and are best heard in the way they're presented. So if you're a traditionalist, please keep listening. Now, a special episode would be nothing without a special guest, and I'm delighted to welcome my co-host for the episode. You've already heard her. It's Professor Ute Spiekerkota of the University Children's Hospital in Freiburg, editor of the special issue and chair of the organising committee for the 2022 annual meeting. Ute, welcome to the podcast. James, thank you. So it was a truly fantastic meeting in Freiburg, a tremendous venue, incredible talks, and the food and wine were top notch. Um, I mean, I'm honestly surprised we don't have more German wine in England. But can I begin by addressing the elephant in the room? This was supposed to be the 2020 meeting. Uh, Do you remember what it felt like when the decision was taken to postpone the meeting? Oh, yes, James, I remember very well. We were absolutely disappointed because we had the scientific program completely finalized and we're just opening the abstract submission platform. The decision was actually taken by the SSIM Council. And looking back, it was good that Council was so objective and careful. Myself and our team were thinking a lot about alternatives. And we also wanted to trade, actually, with Sydney to have the Freiburg meeting in 2021. In the end, the decision to go for 2022 was a very good one for us. Yes, because obviously that Sydney meeting ended up being a a hybrid meeting, which I think would have been a real challenge. uh, And it certainly worked out well for you guys. Obviously, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And by 2022, there was this real appetite for people to get back together and meet face to mask covered face, albeit being mindful of the risks. I asked our guest today what it felt like being back in person. That was great. I I enjoyed it greatly. And I, I felt that everyone was so grateful to meet back and to see people, and not, not only to talk uh, through the computer. So I was happy, yeah. For me, it was great to see all my colleagues again, and it made such a difference. So you can interact and you can... Uh, also, I think for coming up with new ideas and new collaborations, uh, it's essential to have face-to-face meetings. It doesn't work online, although it was a, a good alternative in the COVID time, but it's nothing like being uh, together like this. Yes, for me, it was the first time and I enjoyed that I was able to see the presentations real life and also interact with experts. It was such a great opportunity to connect and reconnect with colleagues of all different types of disciplines. I found it much more interactive than the online or the hybrid only formats previously, like the ICIM the year before. And it was really nice to have a balance between that sort of formal organized social opportunities as well as the learning ones. Uh, And I really, really enjoyed meeting people that I'd previously only met or heard of, I guess, through their papers or publications and by name. And for my part, there's probably a little bit of fangirling going on as well for those that I hadn't previously met in person. But regardless of that, everyone was so approachable and answered questions that I'd had in mind for quite a long time. And it was really nice to learn directly from that level of expertise from people that were not from my discipline and, and not from the metabolic centers that I work in. I mean, it must be great to hear such positive responses to the meeting. And I don't think that was just relief to be back. It was a truly fantastic conference. I know that it wasn't enough just to run a normal meeting. All through the planning, you were looking at how you could innovate and involve the process. You know, how did you choose to make it your own? Well, the delay did increase the anticipation. And we could also realize now that This meeting was exactly 60 years after the first meeting of the society in 1962. And you're right, we had more time to think about new formats. And um, 
we were able to introduce a number of new initiatives, including a platform for young SSIM, speed mentoring sessions, an alumni cafe, a scientific theater session, the science slam on the world of epigenetics. And we also introduced an exchange about the needs and expectations of patients organized by the patient representatives. And we were also very proud that we had the first nurses meeting at this conference, highlighting the essential role of nurses in the long-term care of patients. And that was a great success. And it was really well received. And James, I also want to touch on the overarching theme of the conference, which was genetics meets environment, allowing us to explore the diverse interactions between genetics and metabolism and between metabolism and the environment. And note the focus on the environment goes in hand with what Freiburg stands for in Germany. So Freiburg is the green city There are restrictions for cars, a lot of alternative energy, food from local production, the farmer's market, and so on. And I think that really came across to those of us who were there. And and that idea of these two worlds colliding formed a theme for a number of the main sessions, some of which inspired the papers we're talking about today. Uh, One such session was entitled Reality Meets Metabolism, which had a focus on the patient experience. Our first paper discussed is based on Carla Hollock's talk on improving the interface between academia and industry and drug development. Why is this so important? We all have to work more closely together, I think. And Carla points out that traditionally, the role of academia and drug development is limited to fundamental translational research and participation in pre- or post-marketing clinical research. Nowadays, there is also one important development, which is drug rediscovery. So finding novel therapeutic targets for old drugs. And this originates primarily also from academia and is specifically useful in rare diseases, including metabolic diseases. So in order to improve repurposing, in order to improve patient access to these drugs, We need to develop novel public-private partnerships. These are necessary, and this is what Carla wants to highlight. So working closer together and making drug development an even better success. And I was able to speak with Dr. Hollock alongside her co-authors Noah Rosenberg and Dr. Nina Stolwick, um, all of whom work at Amsterdam UMC and are members of the group Medicines for Society. And I began by asking about the current relationship between academia and industry. Traditionally, lots of new discoveries come from academia. So the technological advances are great. So we understand much more about the pathophysiology, maybe find out a target for a new treatment, a small molecule or gene therapy, something like that. And then um, we usually can bring it to some protected idea that then is usually licensed out to uh, another company to bring it further. And I think there is already an example of the fragmentation of the academic involvement because then you may have an interesting publication and also some financial support for your department or the hospital, but you can lose control over what's happening with your product in that period of time. And sometimes in the end, uh, academia comes back because they want uh, you to participate in the clinical trial uh, period and also in a marketing phase. But at that stage, uh, usually it is completely up to the pharmaceutical industry whether there would be access to the treatment and what the price will be of the treatment. So it is a sort of fragmentation of involvement of academia. We believe that that could be changed in some cases. So that's how it currently stands or it has been for some time. It's obviously very hard to shake up the status quo. How can this model change? So yes, I agree. It's got to be hard to shake up the status quo. But on the other hand, we already see some shifts in the medicine development space, a call for more patient involvement and also more academic involvement. And I think what this PPP model offers is a chance to facilitate that involvement, but it also can benefit all partners involved. And therefore, it is an attractive option for everyone. And especially in the medicine development space for rare diseases, with the specific challenges we see there, the PPP model has the potential to bridge that gap between innovation 
and ultimately successful medicine development, which would benefit all partners involved. Yeah, so a PPP model, a public-private partnership is not new, but the terms on which we want to structure that kind of partnership have uh, social elements. And what we do, we, we need to be realistic. This needs to be started small scale. Just try it out, see how it works, see what hurdles we have, try to improve that. So learning on the job, I would say, uh, with partners and then eventually, hopefully, be more integrated in the entire chain of uh, drug development. Yeah, and I think like Carla said, these are not new, these collaborations. We've already seen them, especially in the access to medicines for low and middle income space. There, they've already been successful at improving health outcomes. You've talked a lot about that this is a good system for everyone, but I guess the current system must suit someone. The presumption is it suits industry because people are often down on industry and, and profiteering. Why should they want it to change? It's a very good question. I think the public debate is shifting and there's a large call for social responsibility. And I think that's also an opportunity for industry. And if they collaborate with academia, they can also share risks and help reduce costs. And academia also brings a lot of knowledge and resources which they can leverage. If they manage to establish a socially responsible price, this might also help in uh, getting the medicines to the patients earlier. And I suppose they, they want to know that their medicines are going to be accepted when they do bring them to market. There's no point producing a product that no one wants to to pay for. But the term social and socially has come up a lot. I mean, we're all based in Europe. The UK is still sort of in Europe. But in, in America, sometimes social and socialism ends up being these sort of slightly dirty words. I don't, I'm not entirely sure why. It seems like a, a good idea to, to want to support society. You're all talking about socially responsible terms. How do we develop these and then obviously sell this idea to people? Well, we have developed from experiences we've seen in other collaborations as well as historic experience in, in low and middle income countries. In the Netherlands, for instance, there are also models for socially responsible licensing, so a more social spin on the traditional model. And we can learn from all of those ideas, put them together. And then our focus is that public investments into these projects should also benefit patients and the public. And based on that idea, we've developed our key elements, so focusing on data ownership to make sure that academic research is available still to the public and can benefit them still on socially responsible pricing to ensure accessibility as well as fast access to make sure that unmet medical needs are addressed as quickly as possible. So I think by incorporating ideas that are already out there and then hopefully small scale testing them out and learning from those experiences, the idea is to refine them. And we also hope to inspire, of course, other academics to think of these terms, to work with them, to incorporate them into such collaborations and together, hopefully arrive at a framework that benefits everyone. And I, th I think when you were talking about this at the SSIM, it's this idea that because academia brings the initial research, often brings access to patients, that sort of the beginning and end that Carla was talking about. And what industry brings is a lot of the money. And because there is a lot of money that needs to be spent on on developing the, the final product and then on the trial process, some of this is, is around sharing that risk that industry takes with expensive drugs because their argument is a lot of these drugs cost a lot because you are covering the cost of all the ones that don't make it there is some element of shared risk isn't there around your socially responsible terms is, is have i just or have i misunderstood that uh yeah absolutely uh, the idea is that we uh, share risk because we as academics also bear some of the costs that can be very high for industry Clinical trials, for example, are extremely expensive, but we believe that in a collaboration, we can reduce those costs. We can make it more efficient. We can, for example, provide data or samples, biobanking, and also access to other groups that we work with. And that is something of the value of the academic that they can bring in. And then industry puts in money. You have to develop uh, together a sustainable business case that then eventually uh, leads to access of the drug. And for example, you don't need that much of marketing anymore because you've already shaken up the field. They know what you're doing, especially in the, in the field of rare diseases. 
We don't need enormous investments in all kinds of uh, symposia or round tables with people around that are fully financed by industry. If I remember from a reporter, it's about 40% of the uh, costs for developing a drug is for marketing. So there's several elements that we can really do more efficiently. But as I said in the beginning, you need to start cautiously. Just do it with a partner who understands and is willing to go into that kind of partnership and see whether it is feasible. There are many hurdles and there is many obstacles that um, industry sees. There is a lot of mistrust, uh, James, within all of the parties. So also between payers and doctors or between regulatory agencies and industry or between all of these parties, we believe should get to know each other better, know what their their interests are and see how we can bring these together in new developed uh, business cases. It also includes new access schemes. So we also work with insurance companies to make sure that new developments in the end also will be accessible for patients. For example, with new pricing models, asking more transparency of industry, And that kind of ideas are now also being explored with our platform, Medicines for Society. So we're collaborating with insurance companies to develop new strategies for access for orphan drugs. So you've begun to answer my question around can it work, but you've mentioned these different groups and how we need to build trust, I think, between patient groups, between clinicians, between academia, between industry. Um, Do you have any examples Uh, Actually, this uh, project that I'm currently working on has come from academia, from clinicians that contacted us uh, because in their patient group, a subgroup of children with pyridoxal phosphate dependent epilepsies, which are caused often by PMPO deficiencies, deficient enzyme in the vitamin B6 metabolism. And these children, they present from birth with, with convulsions and these only cease upon initiation of pyridoxal phosphate therapy. And subsequently, pyridoxal phosphate becomes their only therapy and they are dependent on it for life. But there is currently no registered form of pyridoxal phosphate anywhere. So there is just no drug. And therefore, these patients are reliant on treatment with a food supplement. And clinicians noticed that that gave problems in this specific patient population. So patients had to take a lot of supplements because we are unsure about the quality, potentially leading to more convulsions, to intoxication. So a broad set of issues. And therefore, we decided that for this specific group of patients, a registered medical alternative was required. And so we are working on that, on seeing how we can facilitate that, taking in mind those socially responsible principles. So we found a pharmaceutical partner that will help us in this development trajectory. And together, we are exploring options to see what is the best route for fast access durable access and also access to a high quality form of pyridoxal phosphate under socially responsible terms and with the ultimate aim of providing fast and durable access. And can you guarantee at the end of all that that the price is a good one? Well, I think one of the things that we are certainly doing differently is thinking about the pricing already upfront. So at the start of this development project, we're already discussing with our partners, what is fair pricing? How should the price build up be? And of course, we are learning on the job. We are learning from experience. And there are obstacles in such a development project. So I cannot say, yes, for sure, there will be a great price at the end of this. But it is an ongoing discussion. And we are very aware upfront to make sure that that goal is achieved at the end. Now, I think it's important to add to this that they need to agree with our terms. And that doesn't mean in the beginning that a fair price is also a very low price because you need to get good raw material. You have to do all your quality measurements, etc. But you need to be transparent about what you need to do to get a good quality product to the market for a small population. That means quite an investment And then in the end, there will be a little bit of a profit for the company, but that again should be completely transparent. So for example, if the market grows, if this is made available for more patients and 
there is sufficient return of investment and the price can go down. And was it in your talk that the the notion of cost-based versus value-based pricing came up? Because this is sort of what you're alluding to there, where you're saying, well, if the market grows, which it could do, if you if you make this PLP product, it's not going to be just useful for Dutch patients. It's going to be useful for all patients because this is, this is a, a widespread problem that we're using a food product because there is a lack of a, a good medical grade product available. So you, you talked about, as I say, this is cost-based versus value-based pricing. Can you just briefly explain that notion for me? Absolutely. So we have created, because we want to have high value of our product for our patients, a model from government, not by industry, to look at value-based uh, prices, just to avoid that we get for a very high price products that do not work sufficiently for our patients. On the other hand, asking for a value-based model uh, means that you can also, for very cheap medicines, where you don't need to do a lot of investments, ask a very high price because it has a very high effectiveness profile. So that's the, the drawback of value-based models. So we believe that in some cases, so for example, repurposing or where you partner with uh, public parties, uh, a cost-based model is much more, let's say, defendable. There is a combined investment, as I uh, told before. And so all the parties put in money, effort, etc. And then you make that transparent and there, then there is a certain profit for the commercial party. And I think also for some of the innovations, it would make a lot of difference if we don't go into all kinds of value-based models where there is usually also a lot of uncertainty. So think about gene therapy, for example. So if you put a price tag for a potential life-saving gene therapy that's given to a baby, and in our country that may cost 80,000 euros per quality, then you can come up with the number or the amount of money that such a gene therapy could cost if you use a value-based model. On the other hand, it will take a lot of effort uh, to develop a gene therapy. So what we need is more transparency about so what efforts are made, uh, what investments are done, and why not just start with a cost-based price also when we do not know the value yet. It makes much more sense and then make it more flexible. So in the end, we can see what the value is. We can maybe also adjust the price. Maybe we know more about the market, how it's used, etc. So I think that that is something that we discuss also with our regulatory authorities. Uh, it was interesting. I was just hearing about gene therapies recently from Dr. Nicola Brunetti-Pieri, and he was explaining how uh, we take learning from early gene therapy models, and, and it, it, it certainly seems to be speeding up the development of, of subsequent gene therapy approaches, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're getting cheaper gene therapies at the end of it. So um, I, I think we don't resent companies making a profit, but we do resent companies profiteering. Do we have any examples of perhaps some of the new, more cutting-edge medications that are coming through often with exorbitant price tags? Yeah, well, for example, we have for hyperoxaluria, there is a new medicine, an RNA-based medicine that is very effective. At least it's very effective on a biomarker. So it can reduce oxalic acid, which is the toxic substance in these patients. But there are many uncertainties around this medicine. So our payers are not willing to pay a very, very high price for this orphan drug for only just a few people, unless there is a sort of controlled access with a price reduction. And what we have proposed is to provide a scheme where there is different phases. So there is an initial phase where on, on an individual base, a patient will get access to a treatment. And only if this patient has a good response, we will go to the next phase where there is a different price. In the end, we will try to collect data, not just from our country, but also in Europe with the registry and then come up with, after a couple of years, maybe three or four years with a definite advice on how this should be used in our country for which patients at which point in time in their disease before there's irreversible disease, for example. So we will provide access and at the same time generate data on the long-term outcome 
and then provide that to our insurance companies so that they will have more certainty about that what they are reimbursing is also really worth it. So that that is an example how this could work. The alternative would have been that probably uh, insurance companies would not have been willing to pay that price and then it would not be accessible for patients for a long time. It's good to see that it's starting to work. And I think I often hear about new therapies that are coming. And I think whilst there's this incredibly exciting pipeline of potential new treatments within inherited metabolic disease, the potential cost of these is quite scary. And I think it's important for patients to know that these medicines will be available at the end of, of the road and, and that people will feel confident to, to fund them. So I, I think this is a really exciting idea. As I said, it was a really well-received talk at, at the SSIM meeting. And I hope that it's something that will be taken forward in other countries. If you you keep mentioning your country, so this is obviously in, in the Netherlands, this is being looked at very seriously. Is it something that's being looked at in other countries? Um, and you probably know that also in the UK, there are managed entry agreements and things like that. So I think every member state is now struggling with the same problems, but they have not been able, as far as I know, to really collaborate on the EU level to try to align these kind of uh, access schemes. But I think what we can do is just show what works and what doesn't work, because many of the managed entry agreements do not work because simply there is not a proper valuation at some point where there is a re-evaluation of evidence after some time, that there is a sort of cycle in this. And that with going through that cycle, you can also make the case that if the value is high for a subgroup of patients, then there can be also another price for that group of patients. The big issue that we're struggling with with orphan drugs is that most of the drugs that enter the market are still at uncertain benefit for the entire population. And that uncertainty, I think we need to solve, not afterwards, but directly at the beginning. And I think that should be something that public and private partners uh, should solve together. So it sounds like that's something of a work in progress, but there are obviously some exciting ideas in there and some examples that it's already being shown to work. The next paper we come to also comes from that patient-focused session, and it looked at patient-reported outcomes. Why was this something you wanted to include? Especially when it comes to new treatment development, it is important to understand what are unmet needs from the patient side. Professor Martina Huema discussed how patient-reported outcomes inform and improve the quality of clinical trials and patient care and how investigators and clinicians can make sure that patient-reported outcomes measure important, meaningful content using valid and reliable methods. And I've spoken with Martina and I wanted to ask her to begin with that in this meeting, her talk felt very different to some of the other topics being discussed. And I wanted to ask her, first off, what was meant by patient-reported outcome measures? I think we have, well, not neglected patient-reported outcomes so far, but we haven't had the focus on it. We were very focused on biochemical things, on understanding enzymes and genes and all that. And I'm actually very fond of all those topics of biochemistry and of uh, genetics, uh, but I'm also a psychologist. I'm not only a pediatrician, but a psychologist. And so I always felt that uh, sometimes you could simply do the most unexpected and ask your patient whether he liked what you did or not. And I thought that was missing in our concept sometimes. Examples for patient-reported outcome, that's, generally speaking, that's anything a patient reports to you without you or anybody influencing it. So this can be an attitude. This can be, uh, how do I think about my uh, diet? This can be health-related quality of life, which is quite complex. It can be about, I'm feeling depressed. I'm always afraid. I'm always fearing to make mistakes. And if I can't keep my diet, it's going to make me feel bad. This would be just uh, expressions of feelings, of attitudes, of uh, what a person considers important about their condition. And if you just think of diet, if you think of yourself, if you were forced to keep up a diet for life, that's hot. And I think we have to give the best recommendations, but have also to mirror whether this is feasible and how people feel about it. That was my background, actually. 
So you've really encapsulated some of the challenges where we say we've got a wonderful treatment for your condition, but at the same time, it's exceptionally hard to adhere to. Obviously, we need to find a way to record or, or measure these outcomes. How do you do that, especially in our younger patients who obviously aren't able to report things themselves? Yes, partly you can do it by observation. Um, you can always ask the parents, not only mothers. It's a tendency toward reports from mothers. We have in all the fields, not only in Bonaeros, we have 90 and more percent of mothers reporting. And I think that's not the best way. We should have the perspectives from both parents. But parents are usually quite good at reporting about their child's attitudes or behavior when the child is young. It's never the same as a self-report, of course, which is the best way of getting information, but it's the second best way. And if children grow older, school age, or uh, even uh, teenagers, they are very much able to report for themselves. And how can you maintain objectivity in something that is inherently subjective? Well, I think objectivity is that really uh, the goal, because what we like or not like is always subjective and life is in the subjective. It's not in the objective. I think it's important to measure objectively, but this you can do if you give just uh, the same kind of uh, consideration towards the methods as we do in biochemical methods. If we do uh, some assessments in biochemistry, we have standards, we, we control what we are doing, and we have to keep up the same standards for the measurements of patient reported outcomes. Because uh, we are not that familiar with the methods, but psychologists are, and they can help us a lot. So there are standards to, to do this. It's not the one smiley scale I just have in my desk and show to everyone. This is not the way it's done. But we have to keep our high standards, and we have very high standards, I think, in the field of embolneros of metabolism. And I keep hearing a lot at the moment about trying to develop new biomarkers to support trials, especially in the context of accelerating trials and access to new therapies. What is the role of patient-reported outcomes in clinical care and research? How does it sit alongside this need to move things forward quickly? I think it should always be part of the mosaic that reflects what happens to people. You measure biochemical markers, you measure whatever you like. It's not that patient-reported outcomes should replace those measurements, not at all. We should have a combination of uh, the biomarkers of whatever we like to measure and patient-reported outcomes. So uh, this is just a complement. And we can do this easily early in the beginning if, if a new treatment is coming up. You can ask people, do you think this treatment will serve you? Will it be nicer than what you did before? Is this enzyme replacement, is that something you would like to have? Is that interesting for you? How would it change your life? And so you can um, take people into the focus groups very early on in the process. Do you have any examples of recent successful work integrating PROs into clinical research? Well, it's not that easy because we have not many specific measures. We have the general measures like for the children, health-related quality of life. You, you do the PETSQL and everybody does it. But this is a very generic instrument. So it compares your population to the general population. And it's not at all specific for what you want to measure what's specific in this disease. So maybe we need to properly include things, more specific instruments. And so those should be developed. That would be very helpful. But we have a specific instrument for PKU, for phenylketonuria. And this has been developed, I think, some 10 years ago. And it's used in projects studying uh, the effects of new medications of enzyme replacement and such. And um, this is a beginning. I think we should be aware of the fact who owns those measures, because um, many of them have been developed by industry. And I think we have to make it a prerequisite that we have those available for everyone doing research and for everyone doing clinical care. In clinical care, you can use specific instruments very well. You have a new diet or you have changed the diet or adapted it somehow. And you can just measure how is this child feeling towards the diet? Is it uh, easier now since we've changed something? So you can also use it in your everyday practice. And people are sometimes cynical about data that is perhaps seen as being more qualitative than quantitative. How can we convince them to better engage with these methods? 
<laughs> yeah, I know that. <laughs> um, I think we have to consider what we talked about before. It's subjective objective. How do you feel today about your work, about your food, about whatever makes your day? Is uh, your subjective ways of I'm feeling fine or I'm feeling not fine at all. And this should be an important enough goal to not be uh, cynical about it because we need to be correct with the methods. And as long as we are, we can gain a lot of information that is helpful for patients and for us. What would be your your gold standard for the way you would see going forward people integrating the use of PROs into clinical research? I think it would be fine if we could have some, well, kind of advisor for, for studies, for people who seek advice. And there is, for instance, the promise. This is a database uh, where you can find a lot of items and questionnaires. Uh, you have the NIH toolbox where you find a lot of questionnaires. And if you go back to those databases, there's a lot of experience with the patient reported outcomes, for instance, from diabetes or from cancer research. And so there you can go back and just ask people, how do I do this correctly? And uh, I think that would be helpful to show the ways. And this is what I tried in this article, just to show very pragmatic. How can you do this if you want to do it? Just give people a hand. I think that would be helpful. And to have more psychologists, of course, in the SSIM. We don't have any psychologists in there, as far as I know. So we should open up a group of, of very good psychologists and they can do all of this. Obviously, Freiburg was the first time we saw much more nursing involvement in SSIM. So maybe in Jerusalem, but certainly for Porto, maybe we need to be asking for more psychology engagement around SSIM too. Yes, that would be great. I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> Fabulous. So having just heralded the success of the nurses meeting in Freiburg, it seems I'm now part of the unofficial cheerleading committee for a psychology meeting in Porto. Uta, I know in the UK, we've a big problem getting enough psychology input for our patients. Is the same true in Germany? No, no, actually not. In Germany, the interdisciplinary treatment always includes child psychologists. And we work very closely together in the daily inpatient and also in the outpatient setting. In our metabolic um, unit, psychologists belong to the team and play um, an important role in the treatment of all patients with chronic diseases. So it seems you've not only cracked the wine thing, but you've cracked the psychology problem as well. <laughs> there are other bad things in Germany. <laughs> it didn't seem like that when I was there. So, um, and now for something completely or perhaps slightly different, we looked to the Environment Meets Metabolism session and there was a memorable talk from Dr. Carolyn Broderick on exercise in IMD. Now, I must confess, I was slightly in awe of Carolyn Uta. You, you had to deal with COVID, but in her role at the Australian Open, Carolyn's had to face down COVID, bushfires, and arguably the greatest tennis player of all time, Novak Djokovic. Plus, she's from a country where pretty much everything can kill you. Clearly, I'm easily impressed. What was it about this talk that impressed you? So um, sports and exercise in patients with metabolic diseases and in many other chronic diseases have generally been avoided, especially in patients with energy metabolism disorders. And our experience in a lot of years has been that those patients who were more physically active had less problems. They had less rhabdomyolysis, less muscle pain. And we thought about these training effects and switching in energy producing pathways. So we were really very curious what, what Carolyn had to say, because she went one step further, because she talks about exercise prescription. So she makes patients do sports and not only tolerates when they do sports, she wants them to do sports. And she also uses exercise capacity for diagnostic purposes. So this is a really fascinating perspective. And as you say, it's a fascinating perspective. It's been turned into a fabulous review by Carolyn's colleague, Kira Batten, a metabolic dietitian with a background in sports science. And she's currently doing a PhD looking at nutrition and exercise. I spoke with Kira at the end of August and after so many podcasts where I've spoken about supplements, drugs, enzymes and even gene therapy, I had to ask why we might be thinking about prescribing exercise to our IMD patients. We know that an inborn error of metabolism inherently does lead to a change in physiology. So if that inborn error occurs in the muscle energy system, then that definitely can impact on exercise physiology and therefore often exercise capacity. So if we think about the different cohorts that we've described in this paper, for mercadal disease, anaerobic phosphorylation is affected. For long-chain fatty acids, it's aerobic phosphorylation. 
And for the mitochondrial myopathies, it's both aerobic and anaerobic phosphorylation. And we've found that for some of these patients, that inherently means that their overall exercise capacity is reduced. For others in the cohort, it might just be different types of exercise that lead to that muscle pain, fatigue, or even hospitalization with rhabdomyolysis. We've also sort of found in the literature that sometimes the negative outcomes of exercise that we've just mentioned, so that pain and fatigue, can reinforce a person's avoidance of participating in said exercise. That then leads to a more sedentary lifestyle, and then that then increases deconditioning and in turn further reducing exercise capacity. So it really just becomes a negative cycle. We've also seen that some patients have shown to be so low in their exercise capacity that they're not able to independently undertake their basic daily activities of living, such as taking the dog for a walk or going to get the groceries. And that's obviously a really large concern in itself, but it can potentially increase risk for other comorbidities. And so as an Englishman, it pains me to admit that Australia really seems to lead the way when it comes to sports science. And this talk was originally presented by Dr. Caroline Broderick, who is very eminent in, in this field. She was the medical director at the Australian Open, and she was sharing some incredible stories of the difficult decisions she's had to make around that. So really, uh, you know, incredible pedigree from the, the authors of this paper. Is that Australian excellence, is that carried over in the approach to exercise in IMD? Are you guys leading the way there too? Is this the part where we start talking about the cricket? <laughs> you know what? The last Ashes was a dead heat and you guys were saved <laughs> by the weather. That's normally our fallback. <laughs> Look, I think Australia and Britain have always had a very friendly rivalry. But yes, you're right in that we are really lucky to have Dr. Broderick. So she's a physician, as you mentioned, who has elite sports expertise over many, many years. And our approach is to now use this expertise a bit more systematically in the IMD cohort. So our multidisciplinary treatment and research team is made up of sports physician. So Dr. Broderick, exercise physiologists, metabolic physicians, pediatricians, dietitians, scientists, nurses, and social work. So it's quite a comprehensive team to address sort of these exercise capacity limitations in our IMD cohort. So at the Children's Hospital in Westmead, Sydney, we do have that dedicated sports medicine clinic where our patients can be assessed, exercise prescribed, and then monitored. And we're very aware that not many hospitals have this type of facility. So we're quite lucky to have access not just to the space, but also the expertise and the interventions. And I guess you can kind of look at it like, you know, it's very similar to elite sportsmen. We're trying to push those individual physiological boundaries in this IMD population who have that compromised muscle energy metabolism. We know that exercise testing, although, yes, we might be leading the way in Australia, it's actually not a new area in IMD. But most of the current literature that's out there that utilizes exercise testing is quite focused on nutrients and diet interventions for IMD rather than an exercise intervention itself. Furthermore, most of the existing literature is focused on adults and there's really minimal on children. So working in a pediatric center and having that facility means that there's a lot of untapped area for research and study in this population. And with the different disorders you looked at, McArdle's disease is one of those IMD that I think really is quite intrinsically linked with exercise in the minds of clinicians. What do they need to know for their patients? Yeah, great question. And I think the most important factor here is really educating the patient on how to identify and then make use of the second wind. And that can be done with a nice, easy warm-up period. So, for example, we have our patients that we suggest to do an 8 to 10-minute warm-up prior to their sporting activity, and that then induces a second wind, which then allows them to go on and commence their sport or physical activity. So, you know, their netball match or their dance practice without further symptoms. We also suggest to use rating scales like something called the RPE or rating of perceived exertion or RPP, which is a rating of perceived pain. And these are generally scales that can be understood on a scale of one to 10. And they're useful in guiding both knowledge about the second win because they know they increase and then decrease. And then also in prescribing and undertaking appropriate exercise. So once you've done that second wind, you can then undertake the aerobic or the strength training. But we know there's also some caveats around high intensity or interval training and certain types of muscle movements like isometric movements to then avoid rhabdomyolysis. 
this review doesn't focus on any of the dietary interventions in myocardial disease, but we know that oral glucose and sucrose is generally recommended pre-exercise because it can help prolong exercise and or reduce the magnitude of the second wind. And that second wind phenomena can be useful for clinicians looking to make a diagnosis too, can't it? Yeah, the second wind is pathognomonic for myocardial so if you perform a submaximal exercise test, and that could be on a treadmill or a bike at a fixed workload, which is generally how we assess our patients, or you could actually use a field test. And those ratings of perceived exertion, pain, and also heart rate increase and then decrease. And the literature sort of indicates that that happens around the seventh minute of exercise, but there is a range of about four to 15 minutes. So the, the next big group after those GSDs was the long-chain fatty acid oxidation disorder. What are the highlights there? Yeah, look, this area is still really understudied. There's not really any robust investigations or guidelines to make global recommendations like the prescription that exists for Mercadal. However, if we think physiologically, in long-chain fatty acid oxidation disorders, both aerobic and anaerobic glycolytic pathways are intact. So exercise programs theoretically should be able to be undertaken safely, provided they are individualized and monitored very closely. And again, similar to McArdle, it's really important to emphasize that there should be adequate intake of carbohydrate and or MCT to avoid rhabdo in this particular group as well. And the other group you talk about is something that at the start of the year, I was speaking with a different group of clinicians about priorities in primary mitochondrial disease. And one of the priorities raised by patients and their families is around fatigue and how we improve fatigue. So how does this work you're doing apply to sort of the mitochondrial myopathy? Yeah, look, as you know, the mitochondrial myopathy cohort is very heterogeneous and some patients are extremely limited in their exercise capacity. And then there are others who appear completely unaffected. And again, some of those that do have limitations have difficulty undertaking those basic activities of daily living. And I know in that episode that you did, you mentioned that some patients are misunderstood and just perceived as being lazy. But the literature shows in the adult cohort with mitochondrial myopathies that those limitations can be improved with participation in a tailored aerobic and strength-based program. But again, there's nothing really available for children. I guess one of these big questions is we have TV programs that often finish by imploring their viewers not to try this at home, but clearly the work you're doing is really important. So for clinicians who are looking to try this at home or at least in their home hospitals, how can they better integrate exercise assessment and then prescription into their practice? Do they need all your kit or are there some simple things that can be done in a more typical clinical setting? Yeah, you're right. Safety is the most important aspect of care and research. And like all good medicine, first of all, the history from the patient can tell you what is safe for them as an individual, because it is a spectrum, uh, like most of the conditions in the patients that we see. And then from there as a team, you can slowly build capacity. And you mentioned all of the kit that we have. We know that cardiopulmonary exercise testing in a formal manner and all of the equipment that goes with that is very helpful in assessing and also prescribing and monitoring exercise, but it's certainly not essential for all of those things in this population. You can do basic assessments of exercise capacity in the field. So things like the six or 12 minute walk test protocols, you can use step tests or perhaps a 20 meter shuttle run. Again, depending on the extent of the exercise limitation. From a strength testing perspective, you could use things like handheld weights, elasticized bands, or even dynamometers, again, just being mindful of things like isometric contraction in the Mercado cohort. Again, we know that heart rate monitoring is really useful, but pain and exertion scales like the 1 to 10 scales we talked about earlier have been shown to correlate with effort and heart rate. So they can be used in place of more physiological heart rate monitoring if you don't have access to those formal devices. So once you've done that assessment, you then can look at introducing exercise quite gradually and prescribe based on pain scales and exertion scales. And we suggest regular monitoring and adjustment so that you can continue on an ongoing basis to ensure safety and efficacy. And so starting slow, for example, say 20 minute sessions, two or three times a week with some monitoring, and then that can be built over time. The clinical practice guidelines for myocardial disease are quite good, and they have some supplementary material on exercise that actually give prescription in terms of RPE and RPP and heart rate monitoring scales for exercise. So you can use those as clinicians. 
Oh, that's an excellent plug at the end there. And it's kind of nice to conclude an episode looking at improving access to drugs and discussing patient reported outcomes to feature an intervention that is free or, or at least cheap that can improve quality of life for all of these patients. With these three papers, we've really only scratched the surface of a themed issue with so much great content. So what else are you excited about? So I also very much like the ethics meets genetics session. In this session, genomic newborn screening and its many implications was addressed. First, David Biggs gave insights into the opportunities and challenges of newborn screening by whole genome sequencing and presented the Genomics England initiative. And um, he was followed by an ethicist, uh, Tanya Cronus, who reflected on the assumptions of P4 medicine. So predictive, preventive, personalized, and participatory. And then Henrietta Hopkins came and she summarized the findings of a public dialogue as part of the research and innovation science-wise program, which explored the societal implications of using whole genome sequencing for newborn screening. And all three authors, together with Edith Gross from Eurodis, participated at the end of the session in a panel discussion on genomic screening and in the end co-authored a joint article in this special edition on genomic newborn screening, are we entering a new era of screening? So this topic is of very high relevance for our community, for metabolic diseases, but actually for the whole field of pediatrics. Yeah, and I feel like we just keep hearing more and more about the notion of newborn screening with genomic testing and it's a bit of a watch this space at the moment. I'm hoping to catch them for a podcast, you know, so let's let's wait and see. (laughs) Well, I guess this is the time when I should urge people to stop listening and start reading. You can find the links to all three papers discussed today in the podcast description, or you can find all of these papers and more in the wonderful SSIM themed special issue that's available now on our web pages. I'd like to thank all of our contributors, Noah, Nina, Carla, Martina and Kira for making the time to speak with me. And a special thank you to you, Ute, for putting up with me. James, thank you. It was fun. And looking back, we tremendously enjoyed hosting the meeting in Freiburg and had a lot of fun organizing it. I was inspired by the meeting and realized again the high value of our international collaboration and I have to say also our international friendship. And I'm just returning uh, from a great SSIM meeting in Jerusalem, and I'm already looking forward to SSIM 2024 in Porto. Yeah, I think we all are, and I, I echo those thoughts, and I can't wait. Thank you all for listening, and until next time, goodbye.